0: The views expressed on TMI with Aldous Tyler are not necessarily those of WSUMFM, the University of Wisconsin in Madison, or the Board of Regents. Oh no, my friends, the views for the next hour are all mine. I with Aldis Tyler for Friday, May 28th, 2021. Well, we just passed the one year anniversary of the uh, murder of George Floyd by Officer Chauvin in Minneapolis. And um, it has been officially classified a murder. So I'm not just here trying to stoke flames or anything. I've always said it was a murder and it was upheld as such in a court of law. Um, And, you know, it's kind of funny. People have uh, been looking at it and wondering, you know, what really has happened since then? Have we really seen much in the way uh, of change of policing and how African-Americans are treated by law enforcement? Well, um, it's kind of funny because, I mean, there are some basic facts uh, when you look at the data around crime and justice in the U.S. of A. that uh, haven't really changed. Um, According to the Washington Post Police Shootings Database, even though African Americans make up less than 14% of the population, they account for almost 24% of the over 6,000 fatal shootings by the police since 2015. Uh, the number of overall fatal shootings has remained relatively steady, with police killing about 1,000 people here in America annually since 2015. And further research shows that the rate that police fatally shoot unarmed black people in the U.S. is more than three times as high as it is for white people. I mean, I don't know what else you want. People keep trying to go, oh, but more white people get killed. Yeah, but that's because there's more white people in the population. Way more. And so, you have to look at the ratio. And by ratio, three times as many black people getting killed. Shot dead by police. Now, African Americans also have a problem in that they're more likely to be pulled over. I mean, studies have shown that African Americans, black people, are more likely to be pulled over in traffic stops by police. One of the most recent, a 2020 study by Stanford University... Analyzed 100 million traffic stops by police departments across the United States found that black drivers were roughly 20% more likely to be stopped than white drivers. The study also found that once stopped, black drivers were searched up to two times as often as white drivers, although they were statistically less likely to be carrying illegal items. Uh Uh-huh. Third point, African Americans are arrested at a higher rate for drug abuse. Now, this might seem weird, but hang in there with me. In 2018, around 750 out of every every 100,000 African-Americans were arrested for drug abuse, compared to about 350 out of every 100,000 white Americans. So let me break this down just to make sure we've got it straight here. 350 is, when you double it, 700. So when you have 750... African-Americans out of 100,000 being arrested for drug abuse, only 350 white Americans. That's more than twice African-Americans being arrested for drug abuse than white Americans. Now, previous national surveys on drug use show that white people use drugs at similar rates to African-Americans, but African-Americans continue to get arrested more than twice as often. Um, A study by the American Civil Liberties Union found that African-Americans were even 3.7 more times likely to be arrested for marijuana possession than white people, even though their rate of marijuana usage was comparable. Another problem, well, more African-Americans are imprisoned. Now, this goes hand in hand with that last point. African-Americans are imprisoned at five times the rate of white Americans and twice the rate of Hispanic Americans, according to the uh, latest data. In 2019, African-Americans made up around 13% of the U.S. population, but represented almost 33% of the the country's prison population. White Americans make up about 30% of the prison population, despite representing more than 60% of the U.S. total population. And that's more than 1,000 African-American prisoners for every 100,000 African-American residents, compared to 200 white inmates. That's where I say 5 to 1. 5 African Americans for every uh sorry, 5 African Americans for every one white uh inmate. And here's the thing. 13% of the population African American. Over 60% white. That's not right. Now And just to be clear, the U.S. prison population is defined as inmates sentenced to more than one year in a federal or state prison. Okay? Imprisonment rates have dropped for African Americans over the last decade, but they still, like I'm telling you right here, make up more of the prison population than any other race. Way more than anyone else. And that's that's crazy. Now... It's not like the anniversary of George Floyd's murder went unmarked. In New York City, Mayor Bill de Blasio joined civil rights activist Reverend L. Sharpton in kneeling in silence for 9 minutes and 29 seconds, the time that Chauvin knelt on Floyd and killed him. Across the country, demonstrators gathered for a Black Lives Matter protest near City Hall in Los Angeles. In Minneapolis, many gathered at the intersection where Floyd took his last breaths, which has been turned into a memorial site. Now, Unfortunately, events at George Floyd Square, as it's known in Minneapolis, were briefly interrupted by gunfire. Uh, One person was reported injured. At least 20 rounds were fired. Minneapolis has been struggling with rising gun violence in the past year, as nearly 200 officers in the city police department have resigned or gone on leave in, get this, solidarity with Chauvin. So in other words, these wonderful individuals supposedly there to serve and protect, decided that they would much rather stand with a murderer than actually help keep Minneapolis a safe place. Now, the USA was not the only place on Tuesday to uh, commemorate George Floyd's, George Floyd's death. Uh, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau told reporters George Floyd's death was a tragedy and vowed to take more action in Canada to tackle racism there. In other words, it's not a matter of pointing to the US and you go, oh, yeah, that's a real problem. Look at that. That's a shame. No, Trudeau is actually proactively saying, you know what? We here in Canada are not free from this problem either. We're going to work on it. Meanwhile, you had vigils and demonstrations all over the place. Um, in the UK, you would find them in uh, Edinburgh, uh, Manchester, Birmingham, London, lots of spots. But, you know, here's the problem, and and it's really one of those things that when it comes right down to it, it's going to be difficult to, uh, to tackle unless we really hit the source of the problem. White male minority pervades politics across the U.S. when it comes to who's in power. This does not help. Um Police reform at all. I mean, if you're talking from county officials and sheriffs, to governors and senators, white male minority rule is absolutely pervasive in the politics of the United States. I, I'm not even going to get into the fact that the presidency has only had one black president in the, of the past forty six. According to a new report published on Wednesday, um, white men represent thirty percent of the population. In America, but 62% of office holders. Now, if you're going to stop me for a minute and go, hey, I thought you said white people was like over 60%. That's white people. White men are about 30%. But 62% of them have office throughout the country. It dominates both chambers of Congress. There's 42 state legislatures that are absolutely a white male male majority, I should say, in the state legislature and statewide roles across the nation. Now, by contrast, women and people of color constitute 51 and 40% of the U.S. population, respectively, but just 31% and 13% of office holders. So, So again, A lot of numbers being thrown at you. Bring it back for you. There are 51% of the population of the United States that are women. 51%. 49% or so, male. But because of the fact that things are out of balance, even though just barely more than half of American citizenries uh, are, are composed of female people, Despite that, only 31%, less than a third, are in power in office anywhere in the country. Now, similarly, while 60% roughly are white, that means 40% are non-white, but only 13% of office holders are non-white. Now, this is all according to, like I said, this new study um, done by the Reflective Democracy Campaign uh, that was shared with uh, The Guardian UK. Um Brenda uh, Ciresi, uh, Carter of the campaign uh, in particular the director said I think if we saw these numbers in another country we would say there's something very wrong with that political system we would say how could that possibly be a democratic system with that kind of demographic mismatch Now two factors perpetuate white male control over virtually every lever of US government the huge advantage enjoyed by incumbents and the Republican Party's continued focus on mostly white male candidates. As the U.S. barrels toward a minority white population within a matter of decades, in other words, it's believed to say that if things continue as they are, the 60% white population will drop below 50% sometime in the next few decades here. Um, Some believe that that means, well, if inevitably things will become more diverse in the levers of power. That logic is completely flawed. Women have always been half, slightly more than half, of the country, and they're still chronically under- underrepresented in government. Just because white men are going to be grotesquely underrepresented in the population doesn't mean they won't have themselves a grotesque overrepresentation in power. You know, because let's face it, politicians who currently hold office, they can make election laws. They can draw districts in their favor. This legislative cycle, Republican state lawmakers have devised a barrage of new voter restrictions that have targeted left-leaning communities, vulnerable voters and people of color. Tracy Carter said it's no accident that the pursuit of anti-democratic measures is happening in this moment of really profound demographic change. The fact that it's in that context that efforts to make the United States even less democratic than it already is are happening, that's not a coincidence. But perhaps the greatest testament to the U.S.'s striking power imbalance is who can actually run even with women vying for office in record numbers, white men still overwhelm the candidate pool, despite the fact that, you know, primary candidates in all demographics win elections at just about the same rate, according to the report. In primaries for statewide office in the House, women and people of color actually do better than their white male opponents busting a common myth about white men's electability advantage that's often dogged high-profile women's campaigns. However, because women and people of color have been largely disenfranchised until relatively recent history, most incumbents are still white men. And during the 2020 primary elections, 96% of incumbents won their races. So those white men incumbents, 96% of the time, winning. Winning, winning, winning. Last November, 96% of congressional incumbents held onto their seats, suggesting that officeholders who win their primaries benefit from a smaller, uh, sorry, similar edge during the general election. Teresa Carter said, we have, you know, a political system in general that is not built to include new voices and perspectives. It's a system built to protect the people and the interests already represented in it. It's like all systems, it's built to protect the status quo, not help sift in new voices and new ideas. Another obstacle to a more representative government comes from the Republican establishment, which does not run candidates reflective of the nation. In the 2020 primaries, 93% of Republican candidates were white, fewer than one in four were women. Democratic candidates, on the other hand, were 44% women, 32% people of color, still shy of a one-to-one match with the country's overall demographics, but far more inclusive than the GOP's virtual erasure of entire communities. That partisan divide, plus the incumbency problem, bolsters a cycle where common sense policies supported by the majority of Americans make little headway, including popular solutions such as gun control, automatic voter registration, universal pre-K education, and police reform. Teresa Carter says we have this incredible, limited perspective represented in the halls of power when these decisions are being made. And most Americans don't share that experience and actually, you know, want different outcomes than they're seeing. So Joe Biden has promised that there will be police reform. He promised George Floyd's family. He promised these things would be handled. This would be gotten done. But you know, here's the problem. You can have a white male like Joe Biden in office and he can mean as well as he wants. Hell, you could put me in office. I am a white guy, right? I'm I'm sorry to to blow your uh illusions if you didn't think so. But I'm a white male, so my perspective will be limited just at least a little bit by my background. The best way to truly accomplish things that are equally representative of the needs of a plethora of different kinds of people from different backgrounds are to have people with those backgrounds represented in the halls of power. That is the basic concept behind all democracy. And we are failing that test, ladies and gentlemen, here in America. Supposedly, land of the free, home of the brave, supposedly no taxation without representation. Allow me to say there's plenty of taxation going on right now and very little representation. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. We'll be right back. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice. Tumbling down
1: the rabbit hole.
0: You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. Yes. On WSUM 91.7 FM in Madison. Hallelujah. Am I saving, man? No one person Jesus Christ. It's your cure for the common media. Airing every Friday at 5 p.m. Central. Podcasting every Monday evening.
1: I like you. I think he likes it. I want some more? Oh, yes.
0: Check out TMI, TMI, TMI.com for podcasts and all things TMI.
1: I know Kung Fu. Show me.
2: Dose trace cuatro cinco cinco seis. You gotta keep them separated like the latest fashion. Like a spreading disease. The kids are strapping on the way to their classrooms, getting weapons with the greatest of ease. The gangs stake out their own campus locale, and if they catch you slipping, then it's all over, pal. If one guy's colors and the others don't mix, they're gonna bash it up, bash it up, bash it up, bash it up. Hey, man, you're talking back to me. Take them out, you gotta keep them separated Hey, man, you're disrespecting me Take them out, you gotta keep them separated Hey, they don't pay no mind If you're under 18, you won't be doing any time By the time you hear the sirens, it's already too late. One goes to the morgue, the other to jail. One guy's wasted and the other's a waste. It goes down. separated.
0: And we're back, TMI, with Aldous Tyler. Now, a lot of times on this show, I like to uh, take a moment to um, talk about the human condition, um, how how human cognition works, science, things like that. And so this kind of falls into that category here. Um, Creativity is something that can be elusive for a lot of people. When we think of people who are, like, known For astonishing creativity, it's really easy to assume that they're somehow born different from the rest of us with minds wired to forge new connections and see the world in a novel way. And while some of that might be true, we forget that apparent geniuses often have spent years on less successful projects here and there, practice that helped to hone their thinking until they finally create something truly original. The fact is, Almost every great writer, artist, inventor um, underwent a period of apprenticeship, if you will, in which they learned how to develop and refine their ideas before they had any major breakthroughs. Um, Professor Gerald Puccio, who chairs the Department for Creativity and Change Leadership at uh, SUNY Buffalo State College, says, many people simply don't know that creativity is a trainable skill. This assumption that creativity is innate rather than learned can be very off-putting whenever we're tasked with original thinking. Now, again, clearly, some people do have an innate talent, but let me tell you something. And this is something that was kind of hard learned for me. Talent without work creates nothing. Talent with practice... Is where you get things. So here's the thing Um, you don't have to be talented in order to learn how to be creative because everyone's got a talent for creativity. It's just a matter of how much. And then if you add work onto it, it can become much, much bigger. Uh, There's a steady stream of research right now that uh, psychologists like Puccio have identified the best ways to kickstart the learning process when it comes to creativity. Their evidence shows that with practice, we can all learn to think more originally in our day-to-day lives, building greater innovation and fulfillment into, you know, whatever we choose to do. Of the many creativity training programs out there, uh, Puccio's thinking skills model offers one of the best tested attempts to teach um, creativity. Now, his focus is on the workplace, but it really doesn't matter. Uh, creativity, once you learn it, can be applied anywhere. Uh, his program happens to emphasize the need to balance two types of thinking, convergent and divergent. Divergent thinking is the kind of freewheeling idea generation that we often associate with the stereotypically you know, uh, nutty professor or, or inventor who's all over the place. Um, Basically, they are able to come up with novel, if sometimes harebrained, solutions to problems. Meanwhile, convergent thinking, by comparison, concerns the selection and development of the best ideas to make sure they have potential use. Now, both of these are essential in creative thinking because, first of all, without divergent thinking, your ideas will be just too mundane and boring. They won't; they they'll be just like everybody else's. Without convergent thinking, you won't be able to make much use of them. And people in general won't find it creative, just, you know, crazy. Now, after learning these concepts, um, you'll find that, you know, you can apply divergent and convergent thinking in many different uh, and distinct ways that are thought to be essential. Now for most creative problems, you assess the situation explore the vision you formulate the challenges you explore ideas you formulate solutions you explore acceptance and then you formulate a plan now that sounds very cut and dried and we can help with that uh, basically the idea is very simple first you got to look at the situation that you're trying to be creative with you know make sure you understand all of the parameters um what all is it trying to affect? What are the, what's the end goal? Um, what, what's the problem? Basically, if there is one, so uh, you gotta make sure you've got a firm grasp on that. Then what happens is you explore the vision. If you will, you, this is where you can let that divergent thing out, go and say, well, what are the craziest ways we could try to fix this? What, what are, what are the ways that, 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 almost has nothing to do with the situation, but you could imagine solving it in some weird and, and, and uh, strange way. Then once you've got that back is the vision of, okay, you want to make sure that, that you've got the idea you've got, you've got the visions for all the ways that this could be fixed. You formulate the challenge. You figure, okay, so what are the challenges in making any of these things happen? which ones are more likely to be overcomable. You explore those ideas, right? You see which, which vision um, is more practical. Which one can you think you can come up with a way to implement it? Um, So that way you formulate the solutions. Then you figure out, okay, so here are the various solutions from it. And then you see uh, which are, can be accepted. And then you make a plan based on that. Now, In one recent trial, Puccio recruited uh, almost 600 participants from the university uh, there in Buffalo, and this included people who had taken no creativity training, people who'd attended a three-day course based on his thinking skills model, and those who'd undergone much more extensive education, um, like completing a master's degree in creativity, which also involved a cognitive approach to original thinking, as well as ambitious projects to put the theory into practice. Now, during these experiments, the participants were split into small groups according to their level of creativity training and asked to come up with ways of encouraging people to use the bus network in greater Buffalo, uh, New York. Their solutions were rated by independent judges on qualities like flexibility, um, whether the group were considering a wide range of ideas and originality, as you might hope. The groups of people who had undergone some creativity training performed much better than those without any training or guidance, generating four times as many original ideas. There also appeared to be differences between the training programs. Participants from the three-day course produced, on average, 67 original ideas, while those who had undergone the more extensive education produced about 81 original ideas. And that might seem like a modest improvement given the differences in time commitment between the short course and a master's degree, which actually brings us to a point. It doesn't take tons of training to really and radically improve the amount of ideas that you can come up with. I'm not saying that the master's isn't worth it, but in just a three-day course, you can learn how to produce so much more creativity out of your thought process Just keep that in mind. Um, I mean, sure, those with the advanced training were more skilled at selecting, developing, and refining their proposals. But the point is, is that if you want to be more creative, it's just a matter of reaching out and trying to learn. Um, A quick primer in creativity can really provide an immediate boost to your thinking. Um, Then you need to do regular and sustained practice. I mean, creativity is hard work. Uh, According to Puccio, it takes a lot of time to develop these skills, like the critical thinking to determine which are the most promising ideas. Now, some people are performance-oriented. They're very concerned about how they compare to others. In general, they see their talents as fixed, and so they prefer to stick to tasks that will consistently result in success. A failure for someone who is performance-oriented would be deeply discouraging. They tend to take feedback more personally. They, they think that if you are unable to perform well, it's because of a lack of capability, not something you can develop. While others who are learning-oriented tend to be more focused on the opportunity to increase their skills and broaden their knowledge. They're more resilient in the face of failure since they analyze what went wrong and use those lessons as an opportunity for growth. Now. The difference here is, is that both people who are oriented either to learning or performance can become more creative. It's just a matter of figuring out which type you are, so you know what approach to take against it. So that way you can expand your creativity in a way that matters to you. Um, Ella Mirren Spector, an associate professor of organizational behavior, um in uh, France has shown that people's beliefs and attitudes to work can will have a big impact on the creative development. To see whether these mindsets could influence people's creativity over time, Mir Inspector examined the employees of a large electro-optical manufacturer in Israel. The management had introduced an innovation program asking employees to submit any ideas that might improve processes or products, Each idea was evaluated by an expert panel who rated the potential of the proposal and gave feedback to the original inventor. Looking at seven years of data from the scheme, Mir Inspector was able to plot each employee's creativity trajectory, if you will, and compare them to the results of questionnaires measuring people's learning or performance orientations. Overall, She found that the learning oriented employees showed greater improvement in the number and quality of ideas they contributed to the scheme compared to those who were performance oriented, who tended to give up and stop trying after they face a disappointment. So, again, it's not that there's a wrong way between either of these things. If you're learning oriented, you're probably going to take to this more naturally. But if you're performance oriented, if you get discouraged by failure, the best thing to remember is that you got to keep working at it. Failure hurts. It can. It really can. I get that. And so does anybody else who's ever been creative. But the only way to expand creativity is to work at it. Take what you've got and keep going. Learn from what you've got. You can do that. Now, the most obvious conclusion from these studies might be that, you know, um, Businesses can invest in more training for their teams, or people can invest in themselves more, rather than assuming that creativity will flow automatically. Uh, However, what's important also is that you need to create the right environment to promote a learning orientation, if at all possible. Again, it's not that performance orientation is wrong, but uh, trying to lean into learning from your mistakes and pressing onward will help you become more creative now even small pieces of guidance can offer an initial head start in Puccio's experiment some of the participants with no previous training were told to separate their problem solving into two distinct stages idea generation which involves divergent thinking and idea selection which is where you converge that thinking He found that they were subsequently much more creative than those who were left to their own devices, just with that. So again, if you want to be creative, generate ideas, go crazy. Then take those ideas, write them down if you want to, and try to figure out which ones you might be able to actually implement. You'll find that you're much more creative if you just have even that much structure to try it out with. Regularly test yourself if you encounter small problems, use this model. You'll find that these routines that you use to deal with common tasks will develop your strength in creativity. You'll be able to consider if there are alternatives, even more original ways of dealing with these problems, and soon you might find that you're programming your brain so that it automatically thinks of solutions that you know, beforehand, you, uh, before you started doing this, you might have considered just out of left field, ingenious even. Idea generation and refinement can become second nature, a habit of creativity that lets you tackle life's bigger problems with greater flair and originality. At the very least, you won't feel as stuck as you would be otherwise. You'll see TMI with Aldous Tyler. We'll be right back. TMI with Aldous Tyler. It's been an eventful week when it comes to the environment and big oil. On Wednesday, two very monumental things happened pretty much simultaneously. Um, Just an hour or so prior to the the second part, I can tell you that a Dutch court ruled That Royal Dutch Shell, that's that big Shell oil company you know and love, must dramatically reduce its carbon emissions in a landmark climate decision that could have far-reaching consequences for oil companies in general. The company, according to the court, must slash its CO2 emissions by 45% by 2030. And that's uh, based on 2019 levels. So basically all carbon levels co2 levels i should say pardon me for royal shell that they had in 2019 the uh, royal the dutch court says royal dutch shell has to have those emission levels 45 percent must be gone from that by 2030 that they only have another eight and a half years to achieve that too now that's according to a judgment from a district court in the hague on wednesday here of this week This is including emissions, by the way, not only from its own operations, but also the energy products it sells. Yeah. Now, this is the first time that a court has ruled that a company needs to reduce its emissions in line with global climate goals, according to Friends of the Earth Netherlands, an environmental campaigning group that brought the case against Shell. The verdict could pave the way for similar cases to be brought in other countries, forcing oil companies to reduce fossil fuel production. It comes just a week after the influential International Energy Agency told oil companies they need to stop drilling for oil and gas right now to prevent a climate catastrophe. The Anglo-Dutch company announced plans in September to become a net-zero emissions company by 2050. You know, not eight and a half years, but let's try more like 20 eight and a half years from now. It's a target that includes emissions from its products. It's currently targeting a 20% reduction in carbon intensity by 2030 and 45% by 2035. The court said, no, 45% by 2030. Got it? So Roger Cox, lawyer for Friends of the Earth Netherlands said, this is a turning point in history. This case is unique. Because it is the first time a judge has ordered a large polluting corporation to comply with the Paris Climate Agreement. This ruling may also have major consequences for other big polluters. Well, the impact of this decision will be amplified because the court relied on global human rights standards and international instruments on climate change in arriving at its decision. Now, um, Eric de Brandeber, professor of international dispute settlement at Leiden University in the Netherlands, said, I can imagine this will inspire a series of other cases against companies, especially those active in the oil extraction industries like Shell. It is a groundbreaking decision, it's really a landmark. Now, while Shell claims that its carbon intensity targets are aligned with the Paris Agreement, which aims to limit global temperature increases to 1.5 degrees Celsius, Friends of the Earth Netherlands argues that the company's ongoing investments into oil and gas extraction show that it doesn't take climate change seriously. The court found that Shell's carbon emissions pose a, in quotes, very serious threat. To Dutch residents, and that the company has an individual responsibility to reduce emissions. The court said the company would have total freedom to comply with its order and shape corporate policy, (laughs) which is basically saying you need to take any and all steps necessary to do this. Got it? You have absolutely every freedom, if you will, to make sure you are doing exactly what we're telling you. Shell indicated it would appeal the ruling, of course, which is immediately enforceable, by the way, according to Dr. Brandenbeer. So in other words, Shell will appeal, but it, it, while it's appealing, this, this order is going into effect. A Shell spokesman said in a statement, We're investing billions of dollars in low-carbon energy, including electric vehicle charging, hydrogen, renewables, and biofuels. We want to grow demand for these products and scale up our new energy businesses even more quickly. We will continue to focus on these efforts and fully expect to appeal today's disappointing court decision. You know, guys, I'm sorry, but if today's court decision is disappointing, you aren't that enthused about bringing up your carbon-free energy and getting rid of your CO2-heavy energy. Now, oil companies are facing mounting pressure from shareholders and activists to ditch fossil fuels and invest into cleaner energy sources. The ruling handed down this last Wednesday here may sound revolutionary, according to Cease Van Damme, a professor of international business and human rights at the Rotterdam School of Management. But, he says, in fact, it is in line with what long-term investors are increasingly asking companies to do. Now, that all happened. And at the same time, I told you, there's a second part of this story, where, which made Wednesday of this week just a major turning point. You see, on Wednesday afternoon, ExxonMobil, back here in the USA, conceded defeat in a months-long proxy battle after the oil and gas giant lost a vote over the future of its board to a newly created investment firm. Okay, so check this out. After hours of question and answers and a drawn-out voting period, CEO Darren Woods announced that the preliminary votes indicated that at least two of the board members proposed by its investment firm rival Engine Number One would win the would join the board. Uh, Gregory Goff, who is a former CEO of the oil and gas company Endeavour, and Kaisa uh, Haitala, an executive who led the Finnish energy company Nestis shift towards biofuels. Now, votes are still being we're still being counted at that time for uh, two other candidates put forward by engine number one, Anders uh, Runevad, the former CEO of the Danish wind giant, Vestas, and Alexander Karstner, who is a senior strategist at Alphabet's X and served in the U.S. government as a former assistant secretary of energy. We'll find out about those in a a bit. But the point is, with the two shareholder votes that had passed um, with, well, hang on, let me get to those in a minute. The point is this. Engine number one, the investment firm, if you will, the the, the hedge fund that has a major stake in ExxonMobil and was able to push for this vote for change in board. um, These guys are put together in the idea of using investment capital to force oil giants to change for the environment on the inside. Now, uh, as I mentioned, uh, Woods also announced there's two shareholder votes that had passed. One demanding disclosure on Exxon's lobbying activities and spending. That's right. One of these votes that passed says that Exxon has to disclose where its lobbying money has been going to and is spending. And the second one asking the company to account for if and how its lobbying aligns with the Paris Agreement. So in other words, not only is Exxon going to have to be transparent about its lobbying activities and how it spends, but then it's gonna have to see and publicly announce how the lobbying it's been doing actually aligns with environmental goals set forth by the Paris Agreement. <laughs> the, the annual general meeting represented the final showdown in a proxy fight that's been building in force for months on one side, the board and management of the Irving, Texas-based oil and gas giant arguing that the company's well-prepared for energy transitions while insisting that the world will be reliant on oil and gas for decades to come. Yeah, that's what Big Oil has been trying to insist, at least. On the other hand, engine number one, this investment firm I was talking about, Founded by veteran hedge fund manager Charles James, arguing that years of slowing returns and mounting debt for Exxon have shown it needs energy-specific sector guidance to help it embrace change and put forward its own four nominees for the board. The campaign came at a tense time for ExxonMobil. Although the company banked $2.7 billion in net earnings in the first quarter of this year, helped by rising oil prices and rounds of cost cutting, the Mammoth $22.4 billion loss and record debt last year of 2020 there have cast a long shadow over the company. The vote here also has huge implications for other companies facing pressure over their approach to reducing emissions and managing energy transition. Though Engine No. 1's campaign would otherwise be a classic activist campaign, longtime Exxon watchers said in the months leading up to the vote that a political shift with the election of Joe Biden and a sudden momentum on climate action in the finance world will set this vote apart. Now, the core of Engine No. 1's argument was that ExxonMobil's board, which is heavy on former CEOs of some of America's largest companies, did not actually include anyone with dedicated energy industry experience. As a result, it put forth four candidates from the energy world, both from America and in Europe. In what the company acknowledged was a response to shareholder pressure, Exxon has added three new members to its board since January of this year, including the former CEO of Petronas, Malaysia's state oil company, and activist investor Jeffrey Ubin. It also announced the creation of a new business as of march called low carbon solutions. Just so you know, that's the actual name of it. Capital L for low, capital C for carbon, capital S for solutions, low carbon solutions, a new Exxon company Um, with $3 billion in investment through 2025. Woods said it would focus on monetizing the company's research and development on carbon capture and storage, also called CCS. However, CCS is not economical in the U.S. under current policy. Um, The business would be intended not just for Exxon's own operations, but to provide a new business line to help decarbonize sectors, particularly in heavy industry, that will likely require carbon capture solutions um, or carbon capture storage, I should say, in order to reduce emissions. Now, many onlookers, however, reacted to the plan with skepticism, noting a lack of concrete detail in the initial announcement. The initial projects proposed by the company are largely already exist. Maybe the pre-announced projects or are just still concepts, including a much publicized plan to make a carbon capture and storage hub in the Houston shipping channel, which Exxon framed as a $100 billion public-private partnership. Uh, the company's not said how much of it will, it will contribute itself. The company also said the initial $3 billion figure would, uh, could rise as the business develops. Now. Engine number one, for its part, openly dismissed the plan, noting it is not against carbon capture uh, storage, but referring to statements by energy industry bodies, including the International Energy Agency, stating that carbon capture and storage is not a substitute for dramatically reducing fossil fuel usage. In a letter, engine number one said there is little, if any, chance that carbon capture will enable ExxonMobil or any other oil major to avoid transforming its business over the long term should the pace of global decarbonization accelerate in accordance with the Paris Agreement goals. Now, the choice to rebuke ExxonMobil's management came ultimately down to Exxon's largest institutional shareholders, including BlackRock, Vanguard, and State Street, Several of the largest U.S. pension funds publicly backed the campaign, including CalPERS, CalStris, and the New York State Common Retirement Fund, as well as Legal and General, which have over $1 trillion under management. The largest U.S. proxy advisors also have all backed at least some, if not all, of engine number one's proposals. Glass Lewis in a report said, while Exxon claims to have evolved its strategy and maintained its historical leadership position among oil majors, our review finds the company's competitive position and financial returns have eroded, and its stated strategy to address the underlying reasons for this diminished performance are insufficient. Now, the vote coincides with a remarkable day. Like I said, it's just, you put that together with how. Um, with how what I told you earlier about Shell being ordered to cut its greenhouse gas emissions by 45%. Also, on Wednesday, shareholders offered a stunning rebuke to management at Exxon's main rival Chevron, with 61% of Chevron's investors voting in favor of the company slashing emissions produced by consumers using its products by driving or flying, for example, a group of emissions known as Scope 3 shareholders at conical supported a similar vote earlier this month meanwhile in europe exxon's european rivals particularly shell and bp who have both said they'll target net zero emissions by 2050 have also been under pressure by some shareholders this proxy season to further strengthen their emissions cuts so there it is ladies and gentlemen wednesday of this week chevron had 61 percent of investors voting in favor of the company slashing emissions you had exxon losing several of its board members to engine number one in an environmental activist move to change exxon Mobil from the inside and shell ordered to cut its uh, carbon footprint by 45 percent by 2030 an amazing line of wins for the environmental movement and an amazingly bad day. If all you want to do is keep drilling for oil and polluting the air. You've been listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler, and I'd like to thank you for that. Um, I put this together every week with the aim of giving you news views and interviews on stories that have gone unreported, underreported, or have been just plain distorted thus giving you the cure for the common media to help you see your world more clearly. But I still get asked plenty of times, all this, how is it you see the world as clearly as you do? So you can sift through all of the stuff that gets thrown at you every day. All that, uh, it's just too much information that you are constantly bombarded with in the media. Um, how, how can you sift through that to find what's important? well, I have some general advice for you, and it really does work, honestly. Uh, Now, don't do this if you're driving, mind you. Just save this for later, but the first thing is close your eyes. That's right. Close them. Again, not if you're driving. (laughs) Find a center within yourself. Breathe deep. Let the air in. Hold it. Exhale. And let go of all that stuff, all that tension that... The media loves to feed you with, and they do so because frankly it's you're easier to control if you're all tense and afraid and everything else once you've got that find that emotional and moral center within yourself. remember what matters to you now that you have that and you're breathing slowly and freely you'll be able to better see the world for what it is once that has all been put together and you're ready to see the world all you have to do is simply
1: open